Thank you. It, uh, it really is true that I am the Nancy Drew professor. Um, I'm uh, aiming to be the Harry Potter professor. I think there's probably a more, more lucrative spot there than uh, I've now got. Um, but thank you, Gleesh, for that introduction. And I, I have to say, nothing could please me more than being here to be part of this celebration of uh, the life and greatness of Abraham Lincoln. I always think that any time we come close to Lincoln, we share something in his greatness, and that's always uplifting for us. So we are, we are here memorializing Lincoln, and I think memorializing things is one of the things that we human beings are particularly given to doing. I think it has something to do with the way we relate to time, which is going to be one of the themes of my talk. In any case, it was memorial events like this that prompted my reflections on the Gettysburg Address. Because starting in about the year 2002, I noticed how frequently memorializers of the events of 9-11 cited recited and quoted from the Gettysburg Address in their attempts to say something about that event. So I turned, first of all, to the Gettysburg Address as a way of trying to discover what the 9-11 memorializers were trying to find there and to decide whether it was really appropriate to use the Gettysburg Address, use Lincoln um, in this way. So let me begin by just reminding you the Gettysburg Address was delivered 145 years ago, pretty much, roughly in November of 1863, when Lincoln came to Gettysburg to dedicate the cemetery there in which lay the many, many Union soldiers who had fallen in that great battle of the summer before. Nonetheless, as you may recall, he admitted that he and his audience cannot dedicate, cannot consecrate, cannot hallow this ground. The dead themselves, he said, have consecrated it with their own dedication. The real task for Lincoln and the other mourners then is to dedicate themselves to the cause. As he said, it is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far nobly advanced. So in the first instance, he meant, I think, a dedication to continuing and winning that war in which they had fallen. But the war itself, he says, is dedicated to the cause of the nation and its form of governance. So instead of, or in addition to dedicating the ceremony, Link, uh, the cemetery, sorry, uh, Lincoln calls for a dedication to the nation and the principles for which it stands. And as he indicates at the beginning of his address, that nation in turn was dedicated to a proposition, the proposition that was enunciated in the Declaration of Independence. The Gettysburg Address then, in effect, evokes and calls for a rededication to the proposition to which the Declaration of independence originally dedicated the nation. So the Gettysburg Address, one notices, is an ever-widening circle of dedications. One is like a Russian doll, one dedication inside another, culminating in the original dedication of our fathers in 1776. Now Lincoln, in this way, I think, prefigured the action of the memorializers of 9-11. Just as they looked back to his speech at Gettysburg, so he looked back to Jefferson's words in the Declaration. These two statements, I think, the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address are about as good statements as you'll find anywhere of what America is supposed to mean. And my task this evening is to, or this afternoon, I should say, is an attempt to recapture and make explicit what Lincoln tells us that is by an interpretation of his address at Gettysburg. And, and at the end, I want to reflect a little bit on the use of the Gettysburg Address in those 9-11 memorials. 
Now you may have noticed already that my text is longer than the entire Gettysburg Address. You might put that first slide on. It's up there somewhere. There we go. There it is. That's the whole Gettysburg Address, the total. I don't know how well you can read it, but I'm going to give you a better version of it later on. Um, is a remarkably short. It's a remarkably short speech. Um, it's 10 sentences long, organized into three paragraphs, and using only 272 words. So that's short. As has been noted by many previous readers, the three paragraphs embody a kind of temporal ordering. The address begins, if you can even see it, with a with, with, this, with I th what I think is the second most famous line in American literature, that line fourscore and seven years ago, which refers to the past, to the moment of birth of the nation. The second paragraph begins with the strongly contrasting word now, as opposed to the years ago of the first paragraph, and it speaks of the present, not of the past. The third paragraph, which begins with but, the third paragraph uh, speaks of the future, of what we the living have as our task in the future. The address then, in his three brief paragraphs, moves from what our fathers did in the past through what we are doing in the present to what we must do in the future. But the three, that movement in time has a certain unity to it in that our task today and in the future is somehow connected to what our fathers did at the beginning. So let's, let's look at it paragraph by paragraph. And uh, if you could do the next slide. Um, Um, now, as you probably have yourselves said many times when teaching, uh, it's at least, I think, the most commonly said thing about the beginning part of the, of the Gettysburg Address, that Lincoln counts off four score and seven years from his moment of speaking, which is, takes him back to 1776, the year of the Declaration of Independence, which is the text that he quotes in his opening sentence. 1776 and the Declaration of Independence marks for Lincoln the beginning of the nation, not as some would have it, 1788, the year of the Constitution, or 1620, the year of the Pilgrims and the Mayflower Compact, or any other year that one might select out as particularly definitive. 1776 is the beginning of the nation, he thinks, because the nation is defined by its dedication to this particular proposition. That proposition was the break for the was the basis, I should say, for the break with Britain in 1776, but not, let us say, for the politics established by the Puritans or by the Pilgrims or by the Quakers or the Virginia adventurers, or any other of the putative founders of American communities. According to Lincoln, a nation is defined by dedication to something. These other foundings, American foundings indeed, were marked by a dedication to other aims and they are captured by the proposition that all men are created equal. The Puritans, for example, were dedicated to creating a city on a hill based on the principles of Christian love. A noble goal, for sure, but not the founding dedication of the nation of which Lincoln is speaking. Now, the claim that all men are created equal is a notoriously ambiguous claim. It's even a controversial claim. We all know that cannot be literally true in all respects. We know in our bones that human beings differ from each other, are unequal morally, intellectually, physically, and so on. So what can Lincoln and other partisans of human equality, including Jefferson, have meant by it? Well, Lincoln is unmistakably quoting the Declaration of Independence here, and perhaps that earlier document can help clarify what he has in mind when he says all men are created equal. Can we have the next slide? 
Good. Um, as I've indicated here, the, the sort of crucial paragraph of the Declaration lists out seven or six self-evident truths, uh, which are uh, the, the key self-evident truths of the main argument of the Declaration. And these six truths turn out to be organized temporally, just as the Gettysburg Address is. They tell a certain story, and that is the story of the making of legitimate or just government. And that story has three parts or moments. Maybe you could do the next slide now. There we are. Man. All right. Um, the three parts or moments are what I'm calling pre-political, the political, the moment of the making of government, and then the post-political, the moment of the decay or um, over, uh, not collapse of government, but the uh, deviation of it from its proper goal. Um, the Americans are writing their declaration at that last moment, the po what I've called the post-political. Uh, that is, their, that's their present when the government that they're under has become oppressive and they resolve to throw it off and to make new government. But in order to show that they're justified in doing so, they must tell the story of the making of government in order to reveal the permissibility of unmaking it. That's basically what they're trying to do here. If government is made, then there must be a situation before government that is a pre-political situation, which is what they speak of up there. To create a government, according to the Declaration of Independence, is to vest it with just powers, which is down there. The situation before government, then, is one where there are no just powers, where no one has the right to command any other. That seems to be the very situation that the Declaration describes when it says that all men are created equal. They are created, or they exist originally or by nature, in a situation of equality with respect to authority or the right to command. No one has the right to command another except by just power, which derives from the consent of those who are commanded. So created equal in the Declaration means then that there's no political authority except what is consented to. It means, in other words, what, that originally human beings were, are conceived to be in a state of nature, as the philosophers preceding Jefferson called it. Why do the Americans believe this, however? It seems so contrary to our normal experience of human life. We are, all of us, or at least most of us, born into a, not into a state of nature, but into a political society, into families which are in societies and so on. But the text of the Declaration says something actually very surprising if you think about that opening sentence. It says, all men are created equal. That is, all human beings share in this equality whether they were born 10,000 years ago or just yesterday. Now the Declaration gives us some help in understanding this odd affirmation of a universal original equality when it pairs the idea of created equal with the idea of being endowed at the beginning by, with certain inalienable rights, which are identified as rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It is clear that human beings possess these rights before government is made because the Declaration tells us that government is made to secure these rights. So they must exist before, they must be insecure before, uh, but they certainly exist. So even in a state of equality or a state of nature, human beings have these rights. Indeed, the Declaration's point seems to be that we know human beings, all human beings, are to be conceived of as created equal because they are endowed with these rights. 
the equality is an inference from the fact that all human beings possess rights. Now, what can that mean? Let's look at the rights listed. I don't have them up there, but you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That human beings have these rights means that it is right that they act freely to pursue happiness in their own way, so long as they do not infringe on the rights of others or the needs of society in doing so. Because human beings have these quite comprehensive rights to direct their own lives, they must be conceived of, every one of them, as created equal. That is, as not subject to political authority except what has been consented to. For if they are naturally subject to the rule of others, then they are denied that right of overall self-government or of self-direction that their primary natural rights endow them with. It must follow that nobody has a right to rule others by virtue of any natural claim or inherent quality. Being wiser or stronger or more holy or more virtuous or more industrious, more reliable, more sensitive, more caring and sharing, a very important one, these may all be admirable qualities, but they are never claims by one human being to rule another without that, without that other's consent. Thus, Thomas Jefferson himself once said of Isaac Newton, who he thought was like the smartest guy that ever lived, that um, Isaac Newton had no right to rule even the most illiterate and uneducated person without that person's consent. Now, our fathers dedicated their new nation, and it was both a nation and a new nation by virtue of that dedication. And Lincoln seems to mean that the nation is new, not only on this continent, but new to mankind. That seems to be his view. It is the new nation because it is the first nation dedicated to that proposition about equality. That is the proposition about natural rights. America, Lincoln is saying, has added a new chapter to human political history. And that's one of the reasons that the winning the Civil War is so important. It's not merely an event in the history of this people in this somewhat out of the way part of the world, but it is an event in all human history. For it's a test of whether any government of this sort can endure. The fate of a whole new kind of human possibility is at stake in this war, and that's why it's so important. Now, in this brief statement that Lincoln gives us, he also re uh, refers to uh, liberty. Maybe, maybe we could go back to that previous slide of the, of the Declaration. Can you do that? Uh, I mean, of the opening uh, sentence. There we are. Great. Uh, Lincoln also here refers to liberty. Um, which is often identified with equality as a twin concept of the meaning of the American experience, the meaning of the American enterprise, a nation dedicated to both liberty and equality. But Lincoln tells us not that, but he tells us instead that it is a nation conceived in liberty, a nation conceived in liberty. Now, conceived is itself a very ambiguous term. It can be equivalent roughly to something like thought of or thought up as when we speak of concepts or conceptions. And no doubt Lincoln means something like that notion of conceit. That is, the nation, he says, was dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, not out of inadvertence, but thoughtfully, that is, meaningfully or intentionally. Likewise, it was not merely conceived or thought up, but it was conceived in liberty, that is, freely, without compulsion. The Americans could have done otherwise, but in their freedom, they dedicated themselves to the equality of human beings in their rights. And their free dedication implies an act of conscious choice and testifies to their judgment of the goodness of their choice. 
Now, I've so far ignored what I think is the most striking and strange thing about what Lincoln says here, however. He undoubtedly means conceived in the sense that I've just mentioned, but I think he means something else also. This is not merely a nation conceived and dedicated, but it's a nation brought forth upon this continent, brought forth or given birth to. It is clear that conceived in this context also means became pregnant with. Lincoln's metaphor is, I think, startling. Our fathers became pregnant and then gave birth to the nation on this continent. The replacement of the mothers by the fathers is easy enough to explain at the most obvious level, being women, both at the time of the founding and in 1863 when Lincoln was speaking, were completely excluded from political life, so, uh, or at least more or less completely uh, shut out. So far as the nation was brought forth then, it was men, males, who did so. That fact does not make the meaning of Lincoln's odd locution any easier to understand, however. Why use the metaphor of pregnancy and birth at all when in the same uh, moment one attributes that to fathers? Lincoln's statement both does this strange thing. It both naturalizes the origin of the nation as a kind of birth, birthing, and denatures it at once as a birthing that occurs by fathers, not mothers. It is hard to say which sentiment predominates, the natural or the unnatural. His point in doing so may become visible if we think again of the quotation from the Declaration of Independence that he cites. The proposition that all men are created equal means in itself that there is no natural political authority. Neither God nor nature makes authority or makes political communities. Lincoln carries forward this thought when he attributes the origin of the nature not to God or nature, but to our fathers, that is, to human beings. If, as the Declaration has it, there is no natural authority, if the conceptual beginning point is a state of nature, then political authority must be conceived to begin in consent, or what the philosophers called a social contract. If a nation, as a political community, originates in a contract in an agreement among men. It is an artifact, a humanly made thing and not a natural thing, such as comes to be via the natural process of birth. Lincoln's formulation then says that the nation is both a natural and an artificial thing. This ambivalence matches and perhaps reveals the inner meaning of the biological anomaly of Lincoln's fathers getting pregnant and giving birth. Now, to say that the nation comes to be via consent or contract is to say that human beings must be conceived to become part of it through a kind of conscious opting into it of some sort. Political life, which is the sphere of coercion and obligation, is paradoxically a voluntary undertaking. That's the point of saying it derives from consent. That is the American conception to which our fathers were committed. They appealed to that conception at the moment of the birth of their nation because that birth was coincident with their opting out of the political structure and the political authority to which they were uh, obliged at the moment of issuing the declaration. They do not start out from a state of nature, but from a condition of allegiance to the king of Great Britain. The theoretical origin of political life and consent or contract implies for them implies for them not only that governments are made, but that they can be unmade. Not only that individuals opt in, but that they may, under some conditions anyway, opt out. 
That is precisely what they're doing in exercising their so-called right of revolution. Now, the situation of the American founding generation, of which Lincoln is speaking in this opening paragraph, is importantly parallel to the situation of Lincoln's own generation. Because the South was claiming the right of opting out of the nation into which they had opted in, in 1776 or 1788, wherever you want to date that. The South appealed to the authority and indeed the example of our fathers in attempting to leave the Union. While Lincoln, in resisting their effort to secede, would seem to be resisting the authority of the very fathers to whom he is appealing. Many of Lincoln's pre-Gettysburg pronouncements have been devoted to challenging this attempt by the seceders to cloak themselves in the authority of our fathers, indeed. And that is a theme to which he returns in the second paragraph, in which I'm going to sort of follow him to do when he, when he does that. Now, although Lincoln many times denied the legitimacy of secession, he recognized, and I think this paragraph is meant to be a, 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 a mode of that, he recognized the natural tendency of persons who believed a political society to be voluntarily constructed, that is, starting with the principle that all men are created equal, people who believed that would naturally tend to believe that it could also be voluntarily deconstructed. The nation may begin as a voluntary compact, but, what, but Lincoln is saying, what is thereby born is not a mere voluntary association from which one rightly resigns when membership becomes onerous or distasteful. The nation that is born on the basis of human equality and social compact creates bonds that genuinely bind. This is not a mere association of convenience where one may leave at will. It is more like an organic, an organic I should say, entity that may not be dismembered. The parts are no longer merely autonomous and whole as they were originally before they joined up. The theory of secession may be a temptation in this regime dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, but it is not a correct inference from it. That's what Lincoln is saying, not a correct inference from the original equality. Lincoln's odd and jarring use of what, I'm, what sometimes is referred to as obstetric imagery in the Gettysburg Address is meant to convey this thought, I think. Although one can opt in, one cannot opt out in the normal course of things. The nation made by our fathers is a genuine whole, and the elements of it are organs, not autonomous entities. For a state to claim a right to leave the Union is like the heart or the lungs trying to leave the body. The jarring denaturalization of the natural process of conception and birth that Lincoln effects reflects and embodies just this odd situation. The understanding of the state as an artifact produces the same degree of organic wholeness and integrity as a more strictly naturalistic understanding of the origin of the polity would do. Lincoln's denatured naturalism actually points to the naturalized artificiality of the state. Lincoln thus emphasizes the organic or quasi-natural character of the nation in order to counter the South's uh, perspective on this question. Um, but Lincoln seems at the same time to be rejecting the example of our fathers, who after all did opt out of their previous political allegiance. How can Lincoln reconcile his embrace of the fathers and his rejection of the Southern position? 
So far, we cannot say. <coughs> but um, I, this theme will, address, uh, will appear later on, reappear later in the address. The nation which the fathers became pregnant with and gave birth to was dedicated, he tells us, to that proposition that all men are created equal. Not merely founded in the truth of it, not merely founded in the truth of it, but dedicated to it. Dedicated, I think, is the key word that pro propels the Gettysburg Address forward because it implies an ongoing and an active commitment. It captures the notion that the grounding in, its, in this truth in the past continues to set a task in the present and the future. And thus it sends us forward in this text into the second and third paragraphs of the speech in which Lincoln develops what this dedication means for his audience's present and for the nation's future. Um, I am tempted actually to do what's, I don't know how many of you were at Stephen Kautz's talk this morning, but he stopped in the middle and had some discussion and then went on with the rest of it. And I'm tempted to stop here just to be sure uh, that you don't have any questions because I think what I've been saying might be obscure. Um, so are, if there are any questions that you'd like to pursue or perplexities that I've left you with, this would be a great opportunity to try to make me clarify them. Anybody want, or you just want me to go on? Uh, gentleman in the back. How prevalent was the uh, comparison between the South seceding and the American Revolution very. at the time. In the South, very prevalent. This, they used, they appealed to that as their authority. And if you read some of the secession uh, uh, resolutions that the Southern legislatures passed, they, they, uh, they recited to that all the time. Yeah. Yes. yeah I was going to ask, um, why can't, or what do you think about the idea that there's fathers and then conceived in liberty is actually the mother figure and um, the nation is the kid? creating a natural family unit. And, I mean, you're taking liberty as like lady liberty, personified yeah. liberty, something then, like that. One could, well, I mean, conceivably one could argue, one could argue it that way, although I, I don't think liberty carries that kind of personific personification meaning, but um, possible, I suppose. Okay, I'll go on then. Um, I'd like, could you do the next slide, because I, um, Oh, yeah, I go beyond into the. It's an explosion meant to evoke the war that they were in the middle of. You have to hit it again, I think. Okay, now here, as I've already pointed out, the second paragraph begins with an emphatic word, now, that distinguishes it very much from the previous paragraph. Lincoln and his audience have now left 1776. And they stand immersed in 1863, in that present moment. And in the second sentence um, of this, <laughs> coming on very slowly here, we are now met. We are now at the present in pre present time, but also now here we are in this very place. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. Um, so Lincoln and his audience are in the present time in the present place in a very emphatic way. But the present time and the present place in which Lincoln and his listeners are immersed is not independent of the past that he has invoked so insistently in that first paragraph. The present time and place are defined by their relation to that past because the present reality is this, quote, great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. The present this present crisis is a direct inheritance 
of the founding moment and its dedication. Lincoln is saying something that runs sort of at odds with the general tone of the first paragraph. The, let's we say, the legacy of our fathers is at best a mixed one. What they have handed down to us is this war. <coughs> what they have handed down to us is not necessarily a self-sustaining enterprise. It may not endure. Now Lincoln sees in this war, therefore, not merely a conflict that has arisen within the nation, but rather a conflict arising from the very identity of the nation, from its conception and from its dedication. The Civil War is a test of the endurance power of a nation so conceived and so dedicated. But he does not tell us here exactly how this is so. And here's a place where the brevity of the Gettysburg Address gets in the way, I think, of understanding what Lincoln is about. It prevents it from being completely self-contained. Now, the historical context of this speech suggests at least two different ways in which this great civil war is a test of whether any na this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. The first way is, in a way, the most obvious. It never mentions the word in the speech, but everybody has it in their, in their minds. That word is slavery. Uh, that nation may have been brought forth, Lincoln says, in dedication to equality, but it did contain from the onset a most central challenge to that dedication, that being the institution of slavery. Lincoln refuses, and he's famous for this, he refuses to accept the, pr the presence of that institution as evidence that he's wrong about the nation's dedication to equality. Slavery existed, yes, he admits that. But it was an inheritance for what we, he would call the pre-nation. You know, the pre-nation. They, they, we, we, we inherited it. We had nothing to do uh, uh, but have it. But nonetheless, we didn't choose it. And he thinks that the fathers understood it as incompatible with their dedication to equality. And indeed, the fathers, the founders, acted in the wake of the revolution to abolish slavery in many parts of the Union. And he insists they looked forward to the day of its fading away eventually everywhere. Perhaps, historians now think, I would partly agree with this, perhaps Lincoln overstates the father's view of the subject because surely there were some for whom this was not true, that is, some who did not look forward to the fading away of slavery. But I think on the whole he is correct, on the whole he's correct, that most of the founders thought, as he said they did, that slavery was in incompatible and there would be good to be rid of it, and that indeed, they could see ways in which it was fading away. And some of the largest slaveholding, uh, some of the larger slaveholding founders certainly agreed with this. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, definitely. So slavery is a test of this dedication to equality in a very obvious way. But Lincoln, I think, has in mind also a less obvious way in which it constitutes a test. By 1863, when he gave the speech, many in America spoke out who held slavery to be a good, to be natural, to be the way civilization ought to be organized. Many spoke out who openly endorsed the opposite of the equality proposition that Lincoln cites in the first sentence. Some, including the senator from my now home state, said on the floor of the Senate that uh, uh, the claims raised in the Declaration of Independence were self-evident lies, said on the floor of the Senate. Slavery, Lincoln thought, was a cancer inside the community which ate away at the consensus on all men are created equal. It showed the fragility of that consensus 
Why is that consensus fragile? Well, self-interest. Self-interest opposes it. Equality, Lincoln says, is the father of all moral principle in us, and to affirm equality means to affirm the rights of all others and to accept as morally obligatory the limitations on the pursuit of our own interests that this recognition requires. We may not enslave others, even if it's to our benefit to do so. Yet, the old Adam, you know, is strong in us. It's no surprise, self-loving and self-interested beings that we are, that some of us, or even many of us, should be tempted to shuck off the demands of moral restraint contained in that proposition, that all men are created equal, I should say, and adopt instead the more self-indulgent claim of a right to hold others as slaves, if we can get away with it, as unequals without rights. The war is thus a test of whether this nation can long endure because the war is testimony to how easily the dedication that defined the nation at its start can be forgotten or even renounced. The nation that does not retain that dedication will not long endure. Not that it will necessarily fall to a foreign invader or that it will dissolve in disorder or whatever, but by losing that dedication, it loses its identity. A nation may survive upon this continent, but it will not be the same nation. That's, I think, Lincoln's real point. Now, a second sense in which Lincoln sees the war as a test of whether this nation can long endure is the issue I've already mentioned in the context of my discussion of the first paragraph. The war was immediately provoked not by slavery, but by secession. It is a war to preserve the Union caused most immediately by the efforts of some of the states to leave the Union. Now, Lincoln, as you may know, was particularly exercised about the claimed right to secede. And he did all he could to commit the Union, to commit the nation, to employ arms against the seceders rather than to follow the advice of many, even among fellow Republican Party members. Horace Greeley, the important uh, newspaper editor, um, who was an important leader of the Republican Party, uh, said, this was his advice at the time of secession, let our erring sisters depart. James Buchanan, who was Lincoln's predecessor as president, not a Republican, but a Democrat, uh, had an idea somewhat similar to Greeley's. He thought the secession was illegal, but he thought he also had no power and would exercise none to prevent it. And he lived up to his thoughts on that. This was not Lincoln's policy. He accepted or indeed courted war in order to prevent those erring sisters from departing the Union. Now, why did Lincoln do everything in his power to ensure a fratricidal war? I mean, a war that still no war in American history has come close to the number of casualties that this war produced. Why did he do everything in his power to ensure this fratricidal war rather than to accept separation? Now, that was a question Lincoln spoke to at some length in his two most important addresses prior to the Gettysburg, two most important presidential addresses prior to the Gettysburg Address. In his speech of July 4th, 1861, addressed to Congress in special session, symbolically called for July 4th, you know Lincoln. Um, in, in this speech, Lincoln used language so clearly resembling that of the Gettysburg Address that we can be certain that in his earlier and longer speech, this earlier and longer speech, he's pursuing some of the same themes as he did at Gettysburg. Here's what he says on July 4th, 1861. The action by the government to resist efforts at disunion embraces more than the fate of the United States. It presents to the whole family of man 
the question whether a constitutional republic or democracy, a government of the people, by the same people, can or cannot maintain its integrity against its own domestic foes. It presents the question whether discontented individuals, too few in numbers to control the administration, according to the law, can upon the pretenses made in this case, or any other pretenses, or arbitrarily, without any pretense, break up the government, and thus practically put an end to free government upon the earth. Now in this speech, as in all of his earlier speeches, Lincoln insisted on a great difference between secession and rebellion. Secession and rebellion, two very different things. He never denied the existence of an abstract right of revolution. But this was a right affirmed in the Declaration of Independence. This was a right which, according to the Declaration of Independence, could only be rightly exercised when government became destructive of the ends for which it had been instituted. But Lincoln argued no such case could be made here. Unlike the British in the 1770s, the United States government had, at the time of secession, violated no constitutional or natural rights, had not declared the southern states outside the protection of the laws, and had not made war on them. Of course, as you may know if you've studied any of this political theory, according to the theory of the Declaration, those who lay claim to the right of revolution must, in the final analysis, judge for themselves whether their rights are endangered or not. There is finally no common judge between the, ju the government and the aggrieved parties. The solution in such a case is, in the language of John Locke, the philosopher who developed this theory most uh, decisively, the solution, Locke said, was a, quote, appeal to heaven, by which he quaintly meant uh, uh, war, revolution, some take, uh, appeal to arms. If the government is genuinely threatening to the rights of its people, then there may well be sufficient support to overthrow it. But not every whiff of discontent is legitimate ground for revolution, and the government rightly may continue to enforce its laws and to resist any armed resistance. The right of revolution doesn't just give anybody the right to pick up arms any time and start shooting uh, government officers. Lincoln could accept the Southern action as a misguided and unjustified exercise of their revolutionary right, but then his resistance to that act is also perfectly legitimate and justified. But, and here's the key point, the Southerners were not claiming to be exercising uh, uh, a revolutionary right. They claimed instead a right to secede, that is a right to leave the Union peacefully as they had entered it. The government of the Union, according to the theory of secession, had no right to resist their decision to leave the Union. So one thing at stake in this apparently abstract and very legalistic argument that arose at the time over the uh, legitimacy of uh, secession, the theory of secession, was whether the North had a right to respond militarily to the South, to the South's action. If the South were correct in their theory of secession, then no, Lincoln had no right to marshal armies against them. That was what was at stake there. Now, Lincoln had a whole array of arguments against the Southern argument about secession. <clears throat> I'm going to just mention the most important of them to you, however. The principle of secession, Lincoln said, is death to popular government. I've already read one passage where he says that. It means, in effect, that a losing minority in any democratic vote reserves the right not to be bound by the majority decision. Plainly, this is a quotation. This is from the first inaugural address. Plainly, the central idea of secession is the essence of anarchy. 
If a minority is not bound to acquiesce in the constitutional decisions of the majority and secedes instead, and again a quotation, they make a precedent which in turn will divide and ruin them for a minority of their own will secede from them whenever a majority refuses to be controlled by them. For instance, he asks, why may not any portion of a new confederacy a year or two hence arbitrarily secede again, precisely as portions of the present union now claim to secede from it? So the doctrine of secession suggests itself naturally to those who see the origin of government in compact or contract or consent, which is itself an inference from the proposition that all men are created equal. And Lincoln's analysis shows precisely why the Civil War is a test of that nation's ability to endure, because the principle of secession as a principle of anarchy will destroy any free government if it is accepted, yet it is a highly plausible theory in regimes dedicated to propositions like the American proposition. It's the argument against the rightfulness of secession, even in a regime based on consent, that led Lincoln to that jarring obstetric imagery of the fathers becoming pregnant and giving birth. Through their consent, they gave birth to a nation that is an organic and indivisible whole, because what they freely gave birth to was a democratic republic. It is death to government of the people by the same people for dissident groups to be free to high off whenever they do not like the outcome of a free vote. That way lies anarchy and destruction of free government. So the second paragraph of the Gettysburg Address immerses Lincoln and his audience in the present time and place, and he ins which he insists cannot be understood apart from the task bequeathed them by the fathers, a task that requires as much of them as was required of the fathers. So the last paragraph turns to the question, what is to be done? Next slide, please. Okay. Now the last part of the address, as you can see by the smaller print up on the screen, uh, is by far the longest and the most complex in form of the three. And he begins his third paragraph, you might notice, by almost contradicting the conclusions of the second paragraph. In the second paragraph, he had said it was fitting and proper for us in the present to be present here at Gettysburg to dedicate a portion of that field of battle as a final resting place for the Union dead. But the third paragraph opens with a but, a clear announcement of a change in direction. But, but, what is thought to be altogether fitting and proper cannot really be done by us. The dead have already dedicated their final resting place more than Lincoln or his fellow assembled mourners can do. After all, what can they, the living, do that can, or, or say that can match what the dead themselves gave in order to earn that final resting place? It is not asking all that much of the survivors to say a few words or even to shovel a few spadefuls of dirt over them. And if all the survivors do is that, Lincoln is right when he says the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. But Lincoln did not stop there. Our task as the living survivors is not simply to memorialize the dead as though dedication to what is already achieved is sufficient. The living have a task before them. The living must preside over a new birth of freedom. The living generation faces a task quite strictly parallel to the great task of our fathers. It too must give birth to freedom, not merely to restore or to preserve the past, but to extend it. It is tempting 
to read Lincoln's statement about the future in the light of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's essay, very well-known essay he wrote, on the role of history in the life of peoples. Nietzsche had identified three kinds of history which are written and which are useful to peoples, each of which has its uses and also its disadvantages. The first kind is what Nietzsche called monumental history. This is the story of great men and great deeds that found new things. As a form of history, it can inspire people in the present to do great deeds as well. Antiquarian history, the second kind, is the cherishing memory of the past. It can be preservative of the past. It keeps a nation moored in its past and thus provides for continuity of identity. It is the kind of history to which Lincoln appeals at the close of his first inaugural address when he evokes in a beautiful, a beautiful phrase the mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone. As he makes clear, this kind of appeal has a conservative and a preservative character. The loving appeal to those mystic chords of memory has its preservative effect, but it can also be stultifying. There is such a thing as the dead hand of the past. Thus, Nietzsche identifies a third form of history, what he calls critical history. This kind of history turns a critical eye to the past, stealing from it its aura of sacredness and awe. This, too, can be useful in the life of a people because it helps clear the ground for new action by allowing a people to win freedom from its own past. Now, to many observers, Lincoln appears to be an antiquarian in Nietzsche's sense. He invokes the fathers with all the sentimentality and, and language of sacredness and uh, awe that we associate with biblical Christianity in 19th century America. Yet I think that's an insufficiently subtle understanding of what Lincoln is saying or doing. I think it's almost the case that Link, each of Lincoln's three paragraphs embodies one of Nietzsche's three types of history. The first paragraph directly presses toward antiquarian history, remind us of our fathers, all the great things they did, and so on. The second, though, moves towards critical history because in its quiet way, it points to the limitations of the achievements of our fathers. That is, this great mess we're in is what they've left us. The new nation which they brought forth may not be able to endure. It is convulsed in a great war, which war represents an intrinsic crisis internal to what they gave us, not something that came from the outside. At the least, Lincoln concludes, the founders did not complete the task they embarked on. And the third paragraph moves us back into the sphere of monumental history. Heroic acts are to be done, and it is this present generation which is to do them, not the departed race of our fathers. We are not, Lincoln is telling his audience, a mere race of too late comers who have come after all the important and good stuff has been done. But Lincoln, I think, differs from Nietzsche also in one important respect. The task that he assigns to we the living is not to make anew entirely, not to indulge in critical history to the point of disregarding our ties or our reverence for the fathers. Rather, we the living should do what they did, bring forth something free, something dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Our task is both the same and in profound continuity with the fathers, and at the same time, new and a break with the fathers. The key to the Gettysburg Address, indeed, is this theme of dedication. The founders were dedicated to something, 
the proposition that all men are created equal and equality of natural rights. Uh, that dedication can never be completed or exhausted. To be true to our fathers means not to preserve every jot and tittle of what they did, though it does mean to preserve what's good in what they did, but above all to preserve their dedication to their project. Building a political community on the basis of dedication to our fathers then is an ongoing and it seems infinitely difficult task. Lincoln differs from Nietzsche in affirming that all three kinds of history can or perhaps must coexist. Nietzsche worried that devotion to the past can dwarf the human beings of the present, and thus he looked to the possibility of simply new beginnings. Lincoln sees the great deeds of the future, if they are to be truly great and just deeds, in the continued dedication of the dead fathers, which implies in itself, within it, great new tasks. In Lincoln, then, as opposed to Nietzsche, past, present, and future hold together, not seamlessly, to be sure, but genuinely genuinely if there is a Lincoln to show how to do it. Thus, the inability of the living to truly dedicate the cemetery at Gettysburg is not merely a negative result of their inability to bring anything weighty enough to, the ta- to that field, but more importantly, that inability flows from the fact that their task of dedication is a different task than mere memorializing. The mystic cords of memory are springboards into the future which future contains of necessity the need for a new birth. But what is the new birth to which Lincoln calls the nation at Gettysburg? The answer is pretty clear. Recall that in the same year as the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln had issued the final Emancipation Proclamation. To secure the freedom of the slaves and to properly provide for them, that was the new birth of freedom. Now, given the multitude of that task, sorry, the magnitude of that task, and the burdens of history, that is the burden of the heritage of slavery, this was perhaps as large a task or larger than the original birth of freedom on this continent. Lincoln, of course, in his 10 sentences here, does not sketch out what is needed in order to bring off this new birth of freedom. And there's some evidence that in 1863, he wasn't yet exactly clear what the form the future should take. He was struggling with that himself. But Lincoln does make clear that this task is, a, is in principle a continuation of that of the founders, even while it requires a renunciation and remaking of much of what they had made. As Lincoln and most other Americans before the Civil War always insisted, a chief principle of the founders' political order was the right of the states to order themselves internally as they wished to do, with one limit. They had to be Republican in form. That was the only limit. And Lincoln understood, and they all, everybody understood, that right to include the right to have slavery. But that did not take away from the fact that slavery was contrary to the founding dedication. That is, as Lincoln understood it, the nation was truly divided against itself. The task of providing for the new birth was going to require, then, that some important pieces of the founders' work would need redoing. Federalism, for one example, could no longer allow such a degree of state autonomy as had been the rule before the war. And the fulfillment, by the way, of this part of Lincoln's call is the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. The new birth would also include what Lincoln explicitly refers to, that is the successful completion of the war and the refutation in practice as well as in theory of the Southern uh, uh, theory about thesis of a right to secession. All right, let let, let me conclude then, having talked about this, with a few reflections about 9-11 memorials, which are no longer quite as pressing as when I first thought of this paper, but... Um, I think it's still, it's still somewhat revealing of our present situation. 
um, uh, were the memorialers of memorializers of 9/11 right? Are they still right? I think it probably still happens to cite the Gettysburg Address to find the words for their task. The Gettysburg Address was indeed as eloquent an affirmation as could be made in 10 or even 10 hundred sentences of what about America makes Americans believe that the nation is worthy of enduring. No doubt the part of Lincoln's speech that most recommended itself to the memorializers came near the end. We here highly resolve that those dead shall not have died in vain. That said something of what the participants in 9-11 memorials were seeking. The dead will not have died in vain, Lincoln believes, if the nation can, contain, can retain government of the people, by the people, and for the people, that is to say democracy, and if it can experience a new birth of freedom. Both the democracy it must preserve and the freedom it must renew and extend are implications and consequences of the original proposition to which the, dedication, the nation was dedicated as birth, that is a proposition about equality. The two together, freedom and democracy, define the particular character of the American regime, liberal democracy, free democracy. The dead will not have died in vain in 1863 or 2001 if American liberal democracy is renewed in response to their death. Since those who made war in 1863 were enemies to liberal democracy in one way, and those who brought destruction in 2001 were enemies in another way, it was indeed fitting and proper that the memorializers connect these two moments of trial and tragedy. Yet, in some ways, using Lincoln as he was used in 2002 and beyond violates the spirit and message of his speech. It is to treat him as though dedication to the past were sufficient. It is to act the antiquarian historian. Dedication is both the theme and one of the dangers described in the Gettysburg Address. Dedication to the dead, be they our fathers or the battlefield dead of the war or the victims of terrorist acts, cannot suffice because dedication looks forward even as it looks backward. When it loses that forward look, it becomes dead and thereby loses its enlivening and defining power. So, to repeat an earlier point, it is not merely, perhaps not mainly, that the survivors cannot dedicate the ground for the dead beyond what the dead have done for themselves, but in the final analysis, that is the wrong task. To inter dedication with and on behalf of the dead is not even to properly honor them, for it misses the way their dedicated action was for the future. Of course, this is not wholly wrong either, because to be dedicated to the past, to recall our past and our dedication is a crucial part of what Lincoln calls us to do. But better than merely reading the Gettysburg Address would have been for someone, our Lincoln, after reading that address and the Declaration of Independence for that matter, to interpret the meaning of 9-11 for us in light of Jefferson's words and in light of Lincoln's words. It would have been better for our Lincoln to tell us what we the living have to dedicate ourselves to and how that new task relates to our fathers, including Father Abraham Lincoln himself and the others who partook in that new birth of freedom of the 1860s. It was not enough to say what so many of our leaders have said, that we need to do everything we can to provide security for ourselves, both at home and abroad. B-2 bombers and the Department of Homeland Security are just not enough to guarantee our resolve that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Thank you. Any comments, questions, or... Uh
Dr. Martin Luther King side of the great speech, which also uh, describes itself as a uh, continuation of Gettysburg Address and Declaration of Independence. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I mean, the, that speech isn't exactly, fr you know, exactly fresh in my mind, but um, that seems to me actually the kind of, you know, more in line with the, you know, what I would call the proper use of, of Lincoln. In other words, King, I mean, that was one of the things that was great about King, I think, is that he appealed back to these things that um, Jefferson and Lincoln talked about, but yet he uses that as a launching pad for talking about what's the task facing us now and trying to show us in a plausible way that there's a, some connection between the task he's trying to call us to and that commitment. And I think Obama, I mean, has been trying to do that too. I mean, we'll see, you know, it's still early days for him, but, um, you know, I think he has some sense of this that we don't, didn't find in his predecessor. Okay, great, thank you.